This is the Family Friendly Workplaces podcast produced by Women's Agenda. Imagine a world where all workplaces truly supported those with caring responsibilities to not only survive at work, but to actually thrive. A world where paid work was automatically set up to be family friendly. Noting the fact that we all have lives and people who need and depend on us outside of this work. My name is Angela Priestley and through this podcast, we're not only imagining this world, we're aiming to make it happen and share the stories of those who are already doing this. To make it happen for all employees, no matter what their background, their parenting status or their family type, and no matter what the size of the organisation is that they actually work for. So over this special series, we'll be outlining how the new family-friendly workplaces initiative created by Parents at Work in partnership with UNICEF and already with a number of employers on board is aiming to reset how we think about work for everyone. I'll be having conversations with a number of leaders, including the managing directors and CEOs of employees large and small, on how they are moving towards being more family-friendly, as well as how they make their own leadership family-friendly. But to start with, on this episode today, we'll be examining just what a family-friendly workplace actually looks like and how the new Family-Friendly Workplaces initiative aims to make it easier for all workplaces to be just that, family-friendly. My guests today are Emma Walsh, the founder and CEO of Parents at Work, which has helped thousands of working mums and dads navigate their career, parenting and wellbeing, and has led on putting these family-friendly workplaces guidelines together. And joining Emma is Nicole Breeze, the Director of Australian Programs and Child Rights at UNICEF Australia, which has partnered with Parents at Work to provide a set of certifiable national work and family standards. Let's get started. So Nicole and Emma, thank you so much for joining me. So through this podcast, we are going to be having a number of conversations with different leaders and organisations about how they are making their workplaces more family-friendly while also touching a little bit on how they make their own jobs and leadership family-friendly. But today, with this episode, I particularly wanted to start by looking at what it actually means to be family-friendly and a family-friendly workplace. So Emma and Nicole, that's why I'm so happy to have you both here to help explain, to outline the benefits and the significant changes we could all experience to a family-friendly workplace's revolution not just here, but really all over the world. And to highlight why, I guess this isn't just for working mums and dads, this is about a whole social, environmental, economic transformation that we have the opportunity and the ability to explore now. So Emma, I will start with you. (laughs) Um, To get to kind of the fundamentals, what do we mean by a family-friendly workplace? Oh, thanks, Angela. It's good to be with you having this conversation because really family-friendly workplaces is a new initiative that has emerged in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the whole idea is about how do we start to bridge the work and family divide as employers and employees, you know, we're all continuing to grapple with rethinking and designing the future of work. Um, And It's an opportunity to really redefine the way we think about work and family life coming together. And as you say, starting to think in, you know, a much more family-friendly way and thinking about what that might deliver us as an economy, as a community, and importantly for individuals in their homes. So 
It is a new initiative launched off the back of not only COVID-19, but it's also off the back of the National Working Families Report that was published in December of 2019, so just before COVID hit, where there was uh, 6,000 families that completed the survey sharing with us just how challenging it was uh, to balance and reconcile work and home demands. So this was the, I guess, precipice for this investigation into, well, how could we really make workplaces more family friendly? And of course, then COVID hit. So it's off the back of a a couple of uh, years work now. And we're really pleased to be launching it with UNICEF. Emma, I was just going through my notes just prior to having this conversation and I did go back and look at that survey that you ran back in 2019 with a really impressive and a huge number of um, parents who participated. And I looked at some of those figures, including that 62% of Australian working parents and carers report significant difficulties in managing their physical and mental health due to uh, competing work and family pressures. And I just thought wow, that was before COVID. I mean, that survey was done at a very different time when we really had no idea what was ahead of us all, really. Um, So I was quite alarmed by that, that so many working parents were already feeling such significant pressures back then. And we might get into whether or not this COVID period has potentially even made, in some scenarios, in some workplaces, things more family friendly just by default and it has enabled more work from home and uh, flexibility but also some of the risks that have occurred through that and some of the uh, gender-based roles that may have actually set in as a result of this period but first Nicole I do want to hear from you so just to hear from you what you see as a family-friendly workplace and also perhaps if you could talk a little bit about UNICEF's involvement in this and and where you hope to take this within Australia and uh, internationally as well. Sure. Thanks, Angela. And I I think that's actually a really important statistic that you've just reminded us of. Uh, The survey did report, as you said, 62% of parents and carers reporting difficulty looking after their own physical and mental health prior to the pandemic. So the Family Friendly Workplaces Initiative is all about well-being. Um, It's about family well-being. It's about community well-being. uh, And it's also about productivity and and benefits to the economy. So this this is a really important initiative for UNICEF, and it's actually part of a global initiative. Um, All around the world, UNICEF is working with governments and with employers to help to encourage and businesses and governments to create the incentives uh, to support people to better balance the demands of work and family lives. And this matters, Angela, for a few reasons. The starting place for us as UNICEF is really about looking at children and their experience. And we know that in the first years of life, but really throughout their second decade into adolescence, it's really important that children have the support and access uh, to the focused attention and, as the WHO calls it, responsive caregiving um, of their their parents. But what we know, and again, as you've highlighted through the evidence that came through that national survey here in Australia last year, so many parents and caregivers are reporting that they're anxious, they're tired, they're stressed, they're fatigued, and they're really challenged to meet the demands of life um, and to focus on that attention and and caregiving. 
And we see here in Australia, this is there's actually a real gap that this initiative starts to fill. Um, there is the absence of a national framework around fam- what a family inclusive workplace looks like, uh, both at the policy and legislative level, but also for employers themselves. And, and we see, and I'm sure Emma can talk more about the work um, that she and parents at work are doing with companies in an engaged way. But even where we do see companies who want to put these issues to the top of their list, they're struggling to understand and and to identify, well, what does good practice look like? And what this initiative does is to help to create the standards uh, through which employers can can work to progress progress and and better outcomes in this area. Okay. So one thing from, from UNICEF that I just thought was a really great way to put it that you have got on your website is this idea that we must move from investing in infrastructure to investing in families. Also that we must move from reducing parental stress to actually enhancing family wellbeing. So that's what I find particularly exciting about this because often we think about family friendly or how we can improve the mental and um, physical wellbeing of working parents. It's almost like to help them kind of get through the day or to get through the week or to, you know, to get to the weekend and being able to find some time to spend with their children when actually we can work a lot harder at this to, to, to really transform everything, to transform the entire family and reap all the benefits that come from that. Yeah, that's right, Angela. We, we talk about these big transformative shifts that uh, we need to drive in this space and, you know, really moving from maternal uh, leave to shared parental leave. And fortunately, we're seeing good progress in that area. And as you're saying, these shifts between infrastructure to people. Um, so really, this initiative is about um, a platform and a mechanism to help to create the standards to which we can drive these shifts for the improvement for, of well-being for families here in Australia. Yes. And so let's talk about some of the standards and and some of the criteria involved. And the other thing with this initiative that I think is particularly interesting is the idea that, I mean, often some of these standards, uh, they're being met in bigger organisations, but this also just shares to to smaller organisations what they can do when, particularly if they don't have an HR department even, or they haven't been able to give this much thought or much time, but this provides, this makes it really clear exactly what they need to do to to be family friendly and and to grow their business in in such a way. So if we look at some of the criteria, some of the things involved, Emma, maybe you could take us through it. I'm thinking flexibility, parental leave, uh, childcare, wellbeing, what, what is involved? Mm. Well, I think the the first thing to say before we get into, you know, some of the standards is there is one thing that all employees have in common, and it really is a life outside of work. And I think it it doesn't matter how we define family. I think we all have a variety of needs and commitments that we have to juggle outside of work. And effectively, we all belong to a family who has expectations of us. And I think it's really important to think about this in context of these standards, because it's really easy to think that this is about parents only, perhaps parents of newborns. Um, But no, when we talk about family friendly, we're talking about creating a a workplace where everyone benefits. Um, And as I said, we we all define family in different ways, different shapes and sizes, and acknowledging that every organisation is different, um, different um, industries, different sizes, different shapes, different priorities. So the standards and the way that this is being positioned is about it being inclusive of um, 
every workplace and inclusive of every individual that might work there. So the standards themselves are really about, as Nicole said, introducing a recognised set of national standards that employers can use to support their employees fundamentally meet their work and family needs. So that's that's the basis by which they've been created. And they really encourage organisations to really look at what is it that they could start doing that might foster a more family-friendly culture within their organisation and really what would be the benefit in doing so. And so we've created the standards based on really three core principles. What are the policies um, or frameworks that are needed? Secondly, what are the practices that could be put in place by employers? And thirdly, how are they promoting those things? So policy, practice and promotion is core to how the standards have actually been developed. You're right in saying there are some core categories. Um, so what are the parental leave support mechanisms you have in place is one. Secondly, as you might expect, what are the flexible work uh, policies and frameworks and practices you have in place? Thirdly, what is it that you're doing around wellbeing in your workplace, particularly with through a family lens? And the last one is really thinking about family care. How are you supporting your people to juggle their caring responsibilities more broadly? And again, um, not just thinking of parents with young children, but all of us that have caring responsibilities for other members of our families. Um, and wrapped around those four core categories, if you like, are two other key principles and one of them is what kind of management or leadership culture are you um, fostering that really encourages people to manage their work and family life and then how are you measuring the success of that so we do see lots of organizations that put effort and you know there's not one organization probably in Australia that hasn't thought about how we're working flexibly since COVID. Um, but this is about fundamentally measuring the success of that. So what's working, for example, around your flexibility um, and what isn't working for your organization, for your people, and how do you make sure that you have a, a measuring system in place to make sure those family-friendly workplace policies and practices are actually delivering for your business and for your people. Emma, of those the, those five kind of buckets of things, I guess we could call them, what would you find is or what have you seen is particularly challenging for organisations of all of those? What, what do they, where do they tend to fall down on? Mm. Well, I think, you know, for a decade or more, we've been working, um, I think, pretty hard across many industries and workplaces to improve access to flexibility. There's no doubt that you know, technological advancement in the last decade, you know, the fact that we've got all smartphones and we can work from home when we need to, has certainly meant that incrementally year on year, flexibility has got better and better across workplaces. But I don't think anyone would have expected to, to literally rip the Band-Aid off and everyone could work from home and in many cases uh, deliver as if they were in an office albeit recognising that obviously if you're a frontline healthcare worker, working from home isn't going to deliver. But um, certainly across many workplaces, the ability to, to work flexibly and from home was really challenged in a way that we haven't seen before. And, you know, prior there had been quite a lot of resistance perhaps to having some permanency around working from home, for example, for people to do that two or three days a week. And, oh, no, no, that's not possible 
in our workplace or in your job. But we've seen that certainly challenged and in a good way, um, employers being able to perhaps also reap the benefits of that and rethink and engineer jobs across their, you know, their um, workplace. So I think although we've seen great progress around flexibility in the last decade, I think the last 12 months has just shot it forward. Um, and we've just probably, you know, fast-tracked another five years worth of um, flexible work development. So that's a great thing. Um, I think fundamentally, though, parental leave still remains a significant challenge for businesses. So how do we make sure that employers are contributing in some way to making the parental leave experience good for their people? And, And that's not just about potentially paying something towards a paid parental leave entitlement, but it's about how fundamentally are we supporting someone to go on leave and come back again? Um, How well are we actually managing that transition back and allowing them to continue their work and career um, development in an organisation alongside a young family? And we know that still around 50% of employers don't contribute in any way to parental leave um, in this country. And so what is it that employers can do to start contributing something? Because a lot of our motto, I guess, around this is something is better than nothing. So really encouraging workplaces to go, okay, what's something that we could contribute that might make it easier in particular? when we know people are taking a break and coming back into the workplace. Mm, Something's better than nothing. We need to start somewhere and it is still, we we definitely do need organisations to be taking some lead on this because we're not seeing the, the big push for paid parental equality that we'd like to see occur within the government's paid parental leave scheme here in Australia. Um, Nicole, I want to ask you about the childcare aspect of this. Um, Childcare and wellbeing, family care, I guess those three pieces there, which is obviously particularly relevant to UNICEF and the work that you do. What what do you see as working in an organisation? What makes it family friendly when it comes to, to child and family care? Yeah, I think it's a really important question, Angela, and I'll come to it in just a second. I just wanted to pick up on some of the key points Emma made there and reinforce them because I think they're really super important. Um, The first thing Emma was talking about is inclusivity. Uh, And whilst, of course, UNICEF Australia focuses on outcomes for children, this is an initiative which is about families of all types. Um, So families with children and without children. Um, it, It is about ensuring that workplaces are supporting all types of um, family structures. And secondly, uh, it's it's an inclusive initiative. Whilst it's great to see some of Australia's largest companies stepping into this, I think it's also important to recognise that we've got small and medium-sized businesses taking this on as well. And ourselves, UNICEF Australia, as a not-for-profit organisation of 60 employees, uh, you know, we're up for the challenge here and the process of continued improvement in this. So this idea of an inclusive initiative for all family types and all types of employers is really central to what we're working on. But to your question about childcare, Angela, it's a really important one. Um, And we see that improving the conditions and outcomes for Australia's children, there's a role for everybody. There's a role for uh, families themselves. There's a key role for governments. And we were encouraged by the 
pre-budget announcement of a $1.7 billion investment by the federal government in strengthening Australia's early childhood education and care system. Um, whilst that doesn't solve the problem in its entire, entirety and there are still some gaps we need to focus on, we really do welcome that new investment by government and feel that it targets uh, some of the right places. But governments themselves are not going to solve this problem uh, in isolation and there is a critical role for employers and the idea of improving access to uh, good quality, uh, affordable childcare uh, is, is so important. And when we see employers, and I'm sure Emma can give you examples of where employers are doing this well, because some of them are, uh, where they're helping to support families to meet the cost um, of good quality childcare, uh, that's having really significant benefits. And I come back to what we talk about as so important for children in their early years of life. We, we call it the eat, eat, play, love framework, uh, if you like. You can take all the technical research that's been done around early childhood development and boil it down to these three key ideas. Eat, children need good, adequate nutrition in their first years of life. Play, children need uh, important stimula stimulation and play-based learning to grow and develop. And love, um, children really need that care and protection and bonding with their primary caregivers. And that happens within the family setting, but the role of a strong, quality, affordable, accessible early childhood care system is so important for those outcomes for children in the first five years of life. Mm, absolutely. Um, Emma, can, can I ask you on, on that childcare piece as well? Because and we have seen this on Women's Agenda and we've certainly reported on it where some organisations are able to offer um, often some rather generous uh, entitlements to support employees that have kids in childcare to help um, in enabling them to afford that childcare. That's not really on the agenda for a lot of organisations, it, it just wouldn't be possible. So what else can they do around this childcare piece that would support uh, this family, being a family-friendly workplace? I think flexibility is the key. Um, I think that by allowing families, particularly those with young children, um, those with elderly relatives who are really solely reliant on that particular employee to do most of their primary caregiving, um, need to be able to um, create a bridge between their work demands and what their caring demands are. Um, in many of those instances, they're not able to outsource, if you like, the caring. And so what that requires is an understanding by a workplace to go, okay, how can we work with you on that? Um, so previously we would have seen many, I think certainly a decade ago, even you know a few years ago, and an attitude perhaps from employers which was, well, you know, home life and your caring responsibilities, finding childcare, finding a carer for your elderly mother, or whoever it might be, is your responsibility. You you know, your job is over here with us and you've got expectations around that job that you need to fulfil. What you do with your home life, that, that really doesn't concern us and isn't really our problem. You know, that's your individual issue to solve for. And really what this is about recognising is that, in fact, now in particular, because more work is from home, 
I don't think employers are able to really turn a blind eye anymore to what's happening um, potentially in that um, employee's home life scenario, particularly if we're asking them to work from home because it's an, you know essential to get their job done in a COVID-related environment. So really saying, okay, well, we're asking you to take work home and are expecting you to do your job at home because that's what suits us in a, a COVID-related environment. Um, okay, how does that impact your life? What's going on? How can we actually make sure that we look to work with you on making that easier? And for many people, it's actually quite it's the little things. It's the ability to, you know, go and do that drop off and pick up at the right time um, and not try to rush home to do it just before literally um, the bell goes, if you like, on on pick up time in a childcare centre or at a school. Um, the ability to, yeah, move around those core uh, areas where they must be present for their caring responsibilities or they would really like to um, and recognising where possible that there's, you know, work can shift around that. So um, I think it's that chance to really have those conversations with employees around how's flexibility working for you? How can we help you meet your responsibilities that you have around caring? Um, and, you know, so you can be present as best as you can in your life, but we also get the work needs met. How do we do that? And so that's a quite a fundamental shift, I think, in thinking from workplaces, but not one that necessarily costs any money. And I think there's, you know, certainly been a um, perhaps myth around, oh, if, if we're going to be a really family friendly organisation, well, that means a loss in productivity and a loss in, um, you know, potential presenteeism in a way that's really going to be detrimental to our business. And so I think it's fundamentally starting to challenge that thinking, that that's not necessarily the case. And those that have actually more access to flexibility um, show the ability to, to be, in fact, more productive in many ways and more engaged with their workplace and really appreciative that they are able to, to make um, that bridge that work and family divide. Hmm. Um, on, on flexibility, I do just want to, to, to raise one thing with uh, some of the research that we've done uh, through Women's Agenda is that uh, when we've talked to women about their ambitions for their career ahead, and this is in pre-COVID times, um, and how they feel about flexible work, part-time work and that sort of thing, there's been a, a lot of women note that they feel that they have got access to flexibility and part-time work where needed, but they don't feel like they can progress their career while they're working flexibly or part-time because they're up against people who are not. And what I'm seeing also with uh, some recent research is more people are returning to offices. We are seeing a gender divide in who actually does want to work from home and who says that they need to work from home and who is saying that they want to go back to the office and, and need to be back in the office. And I'm thinking you can guess how that gender divide is going, which again raises concerns for me, uh, red flags, I guess, thinking, well, what will happen with, with promotions and that sort of thing if, if people who are working remotely are up against people who are physically present? Are you seeing that issue at all? Does that issue play into what we need to think about when we're thinking about family-friendly workplaces? Hmm. I think there's there certainly is a risk across workplaces that if we try to, if you like, rush back to what we call sort of back to, um, you know, 2019, that how we normally did work 
and ignored potentially the gains that we've all benefited from through COVID because there are certainly benefits too that have been delivered in workplaces, as I said, more flexibility and ability to manage um, working, caring responsibilities alongside one another better. Um, then I think we're in, in danger of um, perhaps really looking back into the future and really planning for a future way of working that is in contrast to, to where we're actually headed. And so I am really conscious of, of workplaces um, that are rushing back, as I said, to, to get back to the normal days and to sort of, as you say, fly that flag straight away and go, oh, actually, how was that working for us? You know, what in fact did that deliver for us pre-COVID? And I think if, if workplaces are not doing an analysis around what were the challenges that we had prior to COVID around the way that, you know, people able to access flexibility, promotions, as you say, the access to, you know, their gender equality even, and are not doing an analysis around how that's working for them now, then there is an absolute lost opportunity to really leverage and benefit from some of the things that um, COVID has been able to deliver. And I think it's really kind of easy in that moment to go, oh, let's just all come back. But I think we're, we're starting to see that actually even that policy is not going to suit the most ardent of people who, you know, really like being in an office 24-7 um, because, you know, any day a restriction might happen and, we you know, we're not able to be in an office. So I think that's, you know, bad contingency planning actually. Um, fundamentally, that's probably not a good business continuity plan to be having. So I think really uh, every organisation should be doing an analysis around what worked for us, what didn't around flex, around... Um, gender equality and how we were going with that where are we now with that and what gains could we be making um, is, is something that we want to really be focused on. Yeah we, we certainly want to find some kind of benefits out of what we have all experienced and now is the opportunity to find those and to make those transformations and to see what we can have stick not just this year while we are still experiencing the ups and downs of potential lockdown but but well into the future as well. So I want to just kind of end on just uh, going through some of the key benefits of this family-friendly workplaces revolution, transformation, whatever we need to call it. But um, it is good for children. It's good for women. It's good for business. It's good for the economy. So of those four things, I thought that perhaps we could just touch on each of the, the why of those four. So, Nicole, starting with you, and I know that you've already touched on some of this, but can we just talk a little bit about why this is so good for children? Well, yes, Angela. I think the first years of life have a profound effect on a child's life trajectory. Uh, we know that uh, a significant amount of brain development occurs within those five, first five years of life. Um, and the support that a child gets uh, from the system around him or her, so their parents and caregivers, the early childhood education and care system, the quality of that support system has material out outcomes um, and material effects on their lifetime trajectory, their ability to learn in school, their social, emotional well-being, um, and even some research shows the amount of money that they earn um, over their lifetime as an, as, a, as an adult. So we've got to get these support systems around children right in the early years because a child who does well in the early years 
continues to do well more often than not throughout life. But a child that falls behind, uh, so often it's difficult to catch up. So that's why it's fundamentally important for children. Mm, Okay, so Emma, I will cross to you now to ask about the, the why for women. Yeah, I think the interesting part about this is it's not just for women. Absolutely, men benefit from this too. As I said, this is so inclusive. It's about every employee, every family member being able to benefit from this. But um, let's just take women for a moment. Obviously, this creates greater opportunities for women to, um, if you like, really start to access that flexibility better. Um, but it's more than that. It's about acknowledging that the caring is a, is a role. It's a job. Um, you know, whether it's elderly relatives or whether it's children, um, they can't raise or look after themselves. And, you know, the, fundamentally, it needs to be accounted for, it needs to be respected, and we need to create time for it. And that's recognising that that can be done alongside a paid role and that that's okay. So this is actually about a cultural shift and change. I think for many women it's been almost like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't work full time. You know, I've got children that need me and I, I, I need that flexibility because they need me. And there's almost an apology that goes with it. Um, and so we really want to make sure that that gets challenged to say, actually, it's really normal that you've got a family life and that you have, the, as I said, a life outside of work and we respect that and we want to help make sure that that is looked after, I think. So this is about a cultural shift in workplaces um, and I think that really helps women significantly not feel that, as I said, that burden where, you know, they almost have to pretend that, you know, their family life is, you know, uh, an interruption, if you like, on, on their work life. So, and with that, obviously, comes the ability for men to access more family-friendly workplace policies. Because if we make that really inclusive and normal across across the workplace, then we're going to see more men step into that because we normalise the fact that work and care um, is something that all employees will need to, um, you know, as I said, make time for. So. I think that's incredibly important and then obviously the flow-on effects from that around, I guess, the gender bias and discrimination we know that exists around caring responsibilities, um, which is still, you know, alive and well in some work, in many workplaces. So, um, you know, people being, you know, selected or deselected from particular jobs because of their caring responsibilities or potential future responsibilities, um, we really want to tackle that um, to say, oh, well, As I said, everyone belongs to family. We all have responsibilities outside of work. Um, So how do we normalise that as opposed to that being only something that specific people in a workplace might have a need for? So all of that can help deliver, I think, for women, but as I said, more broadly for men and everyone in a workplace. Yes, and so I feel like we've given more than enough reasons for why we need this this shift, this transformation, but we do know that some people do like to hear the business case. Um, I think we should be well beyond the business case, but some people do still like to hear the business case. So I thought that maybe we might just end on why 
this is good for business, why it's good for the economy. And I know that we can point to many figures here regarding, uh, say, women's workforce participation, including the often quoted uh, 2015 McKinsey study that found women's equal participation in the workforce would add US $12 trillion to the global economy by 2025. Um, maybe we can look a little bit more local, but um, Emma and Nicole, I might leave it for whoever wants to jump in here, but maybe we could start on what is this going to give businesses? Let me start and then Emma can, can back this up. I think there's some really powerful stats you've just given there, Angela, and in many ways they speak for themselves. What I would say is what has inspired me so much as we've worked uh, to get these standards ready to launch next week is how employers themselves have been driving this. Uh, they know that there is a fundamental business case to getting this right. Uh, they know that this uh, supports the good retention. Um, it attracts people through recruitment into their companies. And the big word that they've been using over and over again is employee well-being. They know that happy, healthy, well-supported employees are more productive at work. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that supports that. So um, that that's really a key driver for the businesses. And it's been really inspiring for me to see that in action. Okay, Emma, so maybe some final thoughts from you. Um, Spell this out for us. What are the benefits for business, the economy, wherever you want to end on? Yeah. Look, I think that for a long time we haven't made the link necessarily between family-friendly and gender equality. So many organisations recognise and know that they are measured on their gender equal, or, um, you know, targets and, and their progress against that. Um, this fundamentally delivers on that. Uh, and what's great about it is it delivers for everyone. So the ability really for people to have an equal opportunity to participate in the workplace, regardless of their caring responsibilities, is huge. We know currently at the moment that because more often than not, you know, it's women that are making the sacrifice between career and looking after family, and that because they continue to carry that caring load, um, means that we have this, you know, huge pool of talent in women who have made those career sacrifices, are working part-time or not at all because they don't believe it is possible to do both. And I think this really speaks volumes to say, yes, you can, and, and it's being acknowledged that we will support you in that. So I think the ability to have full workforce participation across both genders is enormous. And of course, that leads to more opportunities for women as well to progress into more leadership positions. Because again, you know, the bigger the role, the bigger the demands, the bigger sacrifice potentially on family life. So this sends a signal to say, no, we recognise that family is important and we want to make space and we want to create a support mechanism for that. Um, I think that uh, is hugely compelling for women looking at their future career prospects within an organisation. Yes, and we could go off and talk about all the different figures about getting more women into leadership positions as well, but I will end it there. Thank you so much, Nicole, and thank you so much, Emma, for outlining this for us. And I am so looking forward to uh, continuing this this series and speaking with some of the leaders within the organisations who are really the first to put their hands up to, to, to join this initiative in being a family-friendly workplace. So thank you. 
Thanks so much for having us, Angela. And I just encourage everybody to keep their eyes uh, on the standards themselves. They'll be publicly available for people to check out. And we really encourage people and companies of all shapes and sizes to step on board and, and to become part of this journey. The Family Friendly Workplaces podcast is an initiative supporting the National Work and Family Standards for Workplaces, which informs employers of the minimum and best practice policies they can invest in to create a great family-friendly workplace culture. You can learn more at familyfriendlyworkplaces.com.